Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to serve you. Luke gives us an account of that moment we remember today. Luke chapter 24, begin with me in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman, women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes gleamed like lightning and stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, these angels, why do you look? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Verse 8, I love. Then they remembered his words. Church, this moment was... Uh, an intersection between time and eternity. It was a moment filled with so much emotion and so much confusion. Can you imagine just for a moment trusting your life to Jesus? You followed him for three and a half years. Can you imagine you placed your hope in him as deliverer? You placed your hope in him as Messiah. You placed your hope in him as the Savior of the world. And yet now, here he was. You've heard about him for years and now he's in front of you. But now it's over. He's dead. By all stretch of the imagination, he may have had noble intentions, but let's just be honest, he failed. And in a much more personal way, he failed you. He failed you. I find it really impressive that the first people to the tomb that morning were these women. And they go there prepared to look for a dead man. They have their spices, they want to pay him honor and respect, and they must have had mixed feelings. There's feelings of sorrow and loss, and, but also feelings of betrayal. If he was not our hope, then where would our hope come from? They went to the tomb with their spices to pay him an honor and to anoint his body. And when they arrived there, it was, if you will, out of sorts. The big rock that was covering the tomb that Joseph of Marathia had loaned to our Savior was rolled away. It was rolled away. Now, there were rumors that this Jesus, when he lived his life, there were rumors that on the third day he would die at the hands of wicked men, and on the third day he would rise again, and so... The Romans were really good at what they did, so the Roman officials took what they called a garrison of soldiers. A garrison of soldiers is 16 soldiers, 12 are asleep, 4 are on rotation. The 4 would work for an hour, they would go to sleep, another 4 would wake up. This was around the clock, 24-7, 16 soldiers guarding a grave. The Romans were good. They, they thought that maybe the Jews would steal his body, these so-called disciples, and they would steal his body, and the Jews that were against him, they would steal his body, and when the disciples claimed that he would resurrect it, they would present his dead body. But the Romans were really good at what they did. But even the Roman soldiers seemed unable to stop what was about to happen. They seemed powerless. They got there and the tomb was open and they went in and inside Jesus was gone and they were standing there wondering. The Bible says as they were wondering, two men in dazzling clothes terrified them and they fell on their faces in fear and two angels looked at them and said, why do you look for the living among the dead? I don't know about you, but I hate questions that imply some level of judgment on me. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't like these type of questions. Like what kind of question is that, angels? Like why do you look for the living among the dead? Clearly they weren't looking 
for the living among the dead. They were looking for the dead among the dead. And it's very reasonable to go to a tomb to look for the dead among the dead. What kind of question is this? They're going there to anoint. People don't rise from the dead. And yet, we're looking for the dead, Jesus. And the angel said, he's not here. Well, and they're like, he's clearly not here. <laughs> it's empty. And this created this massive ambivalence and tension in their souls because, because Jesus was so uncooperative, wasn't he? And Jesus was uncooperative on earth. He never did what he was supposed to do. I mean, he walked on water. He raised dead men out of tombs. He fed 5,000 men, 10,000 plus men, women, children with five loaves and two fishes. He invited the outcast. He touched lepers. He invited the insider to his inner circle. I mean, Jesus, if I can say this not disrespectfully, he was kind of obstinate. But yes, even though Jesus did this, you would think that he could at least do death right, right? I mean, after all, if you can't do anything good in life, let me tell you, I'm going to go and make a promise to you, you will do dead, dead well. You will do death well. Because dead people stay dead. Jesus didn't even know what death looked like. He was so obstinate. He, he, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be a, a picture of what we know to be dead. Jesus couldn't even do it. He didn't even know what that looked like. And they say to the women, he's not here. He's risen. And then they discover, if I can say this, that angels can be a little bit snarky. Angels can be a little bit, I don't know, jaded. They ask the question, almost kind of like stand-up comedians. They said uh, to the women, remember how he told you? Well, clearly we don't remember what he told us because that's why we're here this morning. Do you remember what he told you? Well, no, we don't remember. Let me remind you. And so the angel reminds them what Jesus said, that the Son of Man must crucified, he must suffer at the hands of wicked men, and on the third day rise again. Now, clearly they don't remember. So they don't remember this. That's why they're there. So this is why. Why do they ask them the question? And I love the next verse. Then they remembered his words. <laughs> I love that. The angels are going, don't you remember what he said? And, he, and they're like, oh, he said a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, he spoke the entire Gospels, you know what I'm saying? A lot of red letters. Like, you're talking about the salt and light thing? Nope, not that one. Uh, you're talking about, oh, the, the camel and the needle thing? Nope, not that one. Remembering's a very complex dynamic, isn't it? Remembering is complex. Meredith and I have been married now 11 years, and in 11 years, she's discovered that I remember everything I need to forget, and I forget everything I need to remember. Right? This is what my wife has discovered about me. She says, honey, we've got this commitment tonight I told you about. It. And I said, you didn't tell me. She says, no, I told you. I came into your office when you were working, and I told you to get on your calendar and write it down. You, you didn't tell me. I, I don't remember. You didn't tell me. No, I told you, and I know that you knew that I told you because you responded to me when I told you. You looked up at me and said, yes, I put that. It happened this week. Sound like it happened this week? It happened, and I told you. And I'm like, no, uh, you didn't tell me. Which, by the way, let me go ahead and interpret your single people. I didn't remember, and you don't, you didn't tell me are the same thing in marriage, okay? I just mean the same thing. But remembering is, it's complex. Because memory is dynamic. Listen, we have to have a place for memory. It has to matter to us. It has to somehow be connected to a future we expect, or it doesn't stick. Memory is very complex. And after all, Jesus spoke a lot of things. He spoke a lot of words. I can understand why someone maybe forgot what he said because he said a lot. He spoke in, he's so poetic. He spoke in metaphors and he spoke in allegories and similes and he would take a seed, right? Jesus, man, he used everything for a sermon prop. Everything was an object lesson. He would take a seed and he would say, unless the seed goes into the ground, it can't produce a harvest. And everybody's like, whoa. 
But sometimes it wasn't that metaphorical. Sometimes it was more abrupt. He was like, you see this temple? Destroy it. And in three days, I will raise it again. And of course, they don't understand what he's talking about. See, temple? He's not talking about seeds and temples. He's talking about himself. But they didn't get that. They couldn't understand that. Because after all, I can get that a seed needs to go into the ground to die and give life. I can get that you can destroy a building and being raised up, even though three days would be a little quick, general contractor. But human beings don't return from the dead. So the angel sets out to clarify what you should remember. And he says in verse 7, it wasn't a metaphor. He gets really clear. This is pretty didactic. This is very clear. This is very upfront, very concrete, very linear. He says to them in verse 7, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. Remember how he told you he was in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered. There it is. That's pretty clear. Be delivered over the hands of sinners. That's pretty clear. Be crucified. He got really, really specific. And on the third day, now he entered time. He, he inserted the, the picture of time. This is pretty specific. See, sometimes memory comes rushing in when reality finally explains what you could not comprehend. <laughs> but even if all of this is true, even if all of it's true, and just for a moment, if you're here today and you're trying to make sense of God and you came as a first-time guest and you honestly think that this whole Jesus thing might be a myth or a story or a legend, would you do me a favor just for a few moments? I'm just asking about 30 seconds. Would you throw and suspend and sling belief into the air and would you just believe something for just a few moments? If you believe, really, that God stepped into human history, he was born of a virgin Mary, and he took on flesh, he took on bone and flesh, and he walked this earth. His name was Jesus. He lived a sinless life, and he was the pure expression of everything good, beautiful, and true in all of our world. And all of his words and actions were motivated out of a soul that was completely rooted in love. Nothing he did, he did outside of the motivation of love. He lived a sinless life, but yet he began to be opposed by people who didn't like the fact that he included the poor. He began to be opposed by people who didn't like him to include the outcast. He began to be opposed by people who didn't like that he included those that were far from from God, and they begin to plot against him and crucify him. They mark him as a criminal. They, they hang him on a cross, and, and even though he could have stopped it that day and called down a legion of angels, he didn't. He was buried, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Marathia, and on the third day, he rose again. And even if you believe all of that, and you embrace that as a reality, I think today there is still a bigger question that will haunt us as human beings. I think it's a question that's begged to be asked. How can what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in one place on the planet and one moment in time help us now? I mean, doesn't God understand our problems? You ever asked this question before? I mean, I get it, death and resurrection, but how does that one moment and one place in time in all of human history how does it help us all? Doesn't understand God understand how big our problems are? I mean, our our issues are more complex than death and resurrection. I mean, look at us. We humans, we're in disarray. Our nation's in disarray. History keeps repeating itself. There's a repetitive pattern of war and violence, of suffering and poverty and injustice. And let me just tell us, we, we don't seem to learn from what we've done. We keep repeating the same mistakes. We keep repeating it over and over and over again. So how could God, no, no, with all due respect, Jesus, how could God think that one act could save all the problems in the world? How could God believe that one action, the death and resurrection, would solve our problems? And even on a more personal level, i got some problems I need God to fix. How many of you here in this room, you've got at least one problem you need God to fix? Come on, let me just show your hand, all right? got at least one problem, right? 
Like, if you had just one problem, you would be in the zone. People would be begging you. They'd be like, how in the world did you maintain such a life? Right? We got more than one problem. But let's just fancy me just for a moment. What if everybody in the world had at least one problem? That would mean that there were seven billion problems on earth that God needs to fix. So how can Jesus' death and resurrection fix or solve seven billion problems we need him to solve in our lives. See, we think we need God to solve or fix seven billion different problems one person at a time. But maybe this Resurrection Sunday, there's a more elegant solution. Maybe instead of God solving seven billion problems one at a time, maybe God is actually trying to fix one problem seven billion times. One problem seven billion times which made me think about fractals, as would any human being. Fractals. I started thinking about fractals because I started wondering if the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's cosmic fractal that actually saves humanity from itself. Oh, well, let me explain what fractals are for some of you who need refreshers. Been a long time since math class. A fractal is a never-ending pattern. Fractals are infinitely complex patterns that are self-similar across different scales. They are created by repeating a simple process over and over in an ongoing feedback loop. They're driven by recursion. Fractals are images of dynamic systems, the, the pictures of chaos. A fractal is a shape made up of parts that are, are the same shape as itself and are of smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller expressions. Fractals are self-repeating patterns. Is it possible that what God did at the cross and what God did at the resurrection actually initiates, in a sense, in the world, a universal fractal or pattern that needs to be repeated in every life of every person on the globe? Could it be that the death and resurrection of Jesus was God's cosmic fractal, God's cosmic pattern by which he would save humanity? God's cosmic fractal, his repeating pattern. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. This is what the, the scriptures declare. The scripture says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, this is a powerful, powerful passage. Notice what the scripture says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the death of the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Pause. Before we dive in here, I need to step back and say baptism. Because some of you may be unfamiliar with baptism. So let me explain. There are two images that we are given to carry the story of Jesus throughout all of human history. Two images. We're given two images to, to carry the story of Jesus. We're given the image of communion and we're given the image of baptism. These two images delineate or mark or carry Christ's story through all of human history. Let me explain. Communion, known as the Lord's Supper, is what? It's where we take bread and wine and we eat and drink. It's what Jesus did on Monday, Thursday. It's what he did the night he was betrayed. It's, it's to remember the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what communion is. Jesus' body was broken like the bread. His blood was spilled like the wine. So we eat the bread and we drink the wine and we participate in Christ's death, his crucifixion. The second image is baptism. And baptism is a water grave. As barbaric as... Communion was, because crucifixion is barbaric, very barbaric. Jesus dying, the just for the unjust, it's very barbaric. As barbaric as it was, it was pointing to the death of Jesus, but baptism is pointing to the other side of it. It points to resurrection. See, baptism becomes a narrative, 
It becomes a symbol, if you will. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, when you are baptized into water, what's happening? It's symbolizing that Jesus was crucified. He was buried in the grave, and he was raised from the dead. So when you get into this water grave, when you get into this baptistry pool, you are claiming that Jesus came, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. But it's also more than that. It's also telling you the story that you lived your life outside of God. You died to your old self. You were buried with him, and you were raised to live a new life in Jesus. But it's also a metaphor more than that. I can keep on going. That you live this life, one day you will die and be buried, but one day you'll be resurrected to an everlasting life. It is a narrative. It is a story. It is you participating in something that God has already instituted. And listen, it's a pattern. By the way, it's no incident that Easter overlaps Passover. Passover, you know what Passover is? It's a fractal. For us to understand the death and resurrection, we need to go back to human history. Let's go back to the institution of the Passover. You remember the Passover. The Passover instituted by God when the Israelites, or children of Israel, were in Egyptian slavery. They were in bondage in Egypt. And they cried out to God and said, God, deliver us your people. And God heard their cries and he sent forth Moses, the deliverer, to speak to Pharaoh. And he speaks to Pharaoh with boldness and confidence. But after Nine plagues, there's still no progress. No progress. They won't let the people go. Too many Israelites are still slaves, so God says, all right, we're going to institute the Passover, and we're going to give the tenth plague called the angel of death, and he's going to pass over the land and kill every firstborn in Egypt. It was brutal. It was savage. It was harsh. And so he said, I want you to take a lamb. Jewish families. I want you to eat the lamb all night long, and I want you to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes through in the middle of the night, if he sees the blood on the doorpost, he will skip over you. Well, that was enough. It got Pharaoh's attention, and Pharaoh wakes up the next morning. He's lost his own child, and he says, Get away from me. He lets the Israelites go. This Passover was the institution when everything changed in the nation of Israel. They were set free. They were now free to go in the wilderness, but because they were in the wilderness, they had no homes. They had no homes, which meant they had no doors. They had no doors, which meant they could not do the same thing for Passover. So God said, it's a fractal. Follow me, follow me, it's a fractal. He said, well, since you can't anoint to remember your liberation, you can't anoint the doors anymore because you have no houses in the wilderness, I'm going to institute something different. I'm going to institute something called the sacrificial system. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to take an unblemished lamb, and I want you to offer it on the altar. And if you were poor, you could use, you could use uh, pigeons. This is why we know that Mary and, and, uh, and, and, um, and uh, Joseph were, were poor because on the eighth day they offered pigeons when they came to the temple. But ideally it was a sacrificial lamb. Now I've read that, I don't know about you, I've read that and I've thought to myself, what kind of God needs us to sacrifice lambs? Have you ever thought about this before? I mean, really entered the text. Like, I mean, I have real issues, and I got real problems, and I don't need a God. I need God to fix them and deal with them. I don't need a God who needs a sacrifice. With all due respect, God, I don't need a God who wants my pet dead. You ever thought about this? It's a fractal. Like, I'm pretty sure that God did not need the offering. We needed the offering. And it was not God who needed the lamb sacrificed on an altar. It was us that needed the lamb sacrificed on the altar. Why? Because God was trying to teach us and show us a pattern that would lead us to life. He was trying to, in human history, already institute a fractal that would be self-repeating in every single life. And he was beginning to show us what it would look like when God came in the person of Jesus. It's a fractal. It's a self-repeating pattern. 
this death and resurrection. In fact, this fractal was repeated all throughout human history. You remember the story, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, the promised child. Take him up on a mountain. I want you to sacrifice him and kill him there. He's not a babe, y'all. He's not an infant. He's a teenager. He goes up on Mount Moriah, the place that God assigned, and he's got his knife up, and he's about to stab his son in the chest. Talk about a family day. And we get some insight into what Abraham was thinking. Did you know what the Bible says? Abraham was not thinking God would save his son and tell him to stop. Hebrews eleven sixteen. God said that Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. Woo! Did you catch that? There's a fractal. It's almost as if he looked through history and already knew that this self-replicating pattern would be something that would be true of every follower of God. It's almost like he looked into history and knew that death must precede resurrection. It's almost like he looked into history and knew and understood that this was God and his way of repeating. But that wasn't, of course, God's intention. He didn't want Abraham to kill his son. And if you're new to church, God isn't into human sacrifices. Let me make that clear in Scripture. Very clear. And right before he killed him, God said, stop. Timing is everything. And he looked up and he saw the ram caught in the bushes and he said, now sacrifice the ram, and God said, I'm Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide the sacrifice. I will provide the sacrifice. But I look throughout Scripture, and I see fractals, self-repeating patterns that happen over and over and over again. You know, I was reading the other day in an article on the Internet that there are people who on the planet have no facial recognition. Did you know this? It's called prosopagnosia. They can't recognize facial distinctions. And I thought that was interesting, but then I thought that was really sad. I about cried reading this article. I'm thinking, how crazy would it be that you can't identify the faces of the people you love? For these people with prosopagnosia, they can't identify any facial distinction on any face. One of the great joys of my life is being able to see the faces of the people I love, like my kids. It messed me up when Marley came there with that little sign at the beginning in our presentation. He's waiting for you. It messed me up watching that little face smile. I, I love seeing the faces that I love. Nothing more important or nothing more exciting when you go overseas on a mission trip and you recognize a friend in a place in the world that you didn't think was supposed to be there. Can you imagine not being able to recognize anyone? You meet everyone you meet for the very first time every time. It's like 50 first dates. At the same time, there are people on the other end of the spectrum who have an acute ability for facial awareness. They call it superior face recognition. It's true. I'm not making this up. They can identify people, and if they see you in a crowd, they will never forget your face. Scientists right now are trying to harness this superpower because it will help in criminology. They can look at a crowd of 1,000 people and pick out any one person. It's a superpower. It's something, something that's happened. It's called superior face recognition. They know distinguishable characteristics of every single face. And I, I was reading this, and I realized that part of the dilemma when it comes to God is we are incapable of facial recognition. See, God knew this. That's why the Scripture says that when Jesus walked among us, we didn't recognize him. We saw nothing in him that was attractive to us. We looked at God in the flesh, and we didn't know it was God. But there was one man who knew it was God. He didn't suffer from prosopagnosia. He suffered from superior face recognition. And his name was John the Baptist. And he kicked, actually, he had a little bit more than face recognition. He had voice recognition too because he kicked in his mother's womb when Mary spoke to him the day that he was in his mother's womb. And the Bible says that John sees him and he doesn't just see him as the Lamb of God. He says, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody else didn't recognize Jesus as such. It wasn't that John recognized him as the Messiah. It was you know, John recognized the fractal of what God was attempting to do in human history. He recognized him as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. See, the fractal, the self-repeating pattern. But you think about this. It's really amazing how God, before Jesus, the metaphor that we would arrive at to see God was an altar. And the element was fire. Because fire would come down and consume the sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it was all pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus. And at the cross, we thought actually Jesus was being consumed by death, but Jesus was actually consuming death. Jesus was the fire of God that put death to death. Every time Jesus met death in the Gospels, death died. Jesus was actually the fire from God to consume death on the cross. He was the fire that put death to death. But after Jesus, the metaphor changed from an altar to a water grave. Baptism. The the metaphor changed from fire to water. Why? Because every scientist will tell you that without water, there is no life. And where there is water, there is life. God is saying before Jesus, the fire needs to consume death. And after Jesus, the water is here to birth life. The fire is consuming death and what is old. And the life is birthing what is new and in Christ. So he goes on in Romans 6, 4. And he says, powerfully. He says in verse 4, go back one verse. He says that we know, and we were therefore buried with him through baptism and death, in order that just as Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Can I just say something real quick? A new life. If you're uncertain about God and you're in this room today, I want to tell you that God has some intentions for you. And his intentions for you is that you would live a new life. His intention for you is that you would live the life that God wants for you. His intention for you is that you would live a new life in Him. His intention for you is that you would experience what true life is, to have the life that only God can give. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, He will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Here's the human dilemma. We all want to be united in a resurrection, but none of us really want to be united in a crucifixion. But it's a fractal. We want the life of God, but we don't want the death of God. But what we don't realize is we spend all of our lives trying to get away from death while we're swimming in death all the time. But the only way to true life is through death. We're so afraid of the Good Fridays in our life. We're so afraid of the Via Dolorosas. We're so afraid of the times when we have to bear the cross. But I want to tell you, unless you walk in such places, you will never arrive at places of resurrection. It's a fractal. It can't be skipped. This is God's pattern. It's the human pattern repeated through every life. It's death and resurrection. It's the fire of God consuming death and water birthing new life. It's a fractal. He goes on in Romans 6 and verse 6 and 7. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of rule by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died, died, has been set free from sin. There's that word, church. Oh, that word. It's so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable to say it. Sin. What a judgy word. When I say it, you already feel condemned. You're conditioned. Ready? Sin. You already feel it. We as humans, we're conditioned to to feel the judgment and the condemnation. Sin. 
Can I explain from the perspective of fractals sin for a few moments? Because why not talk about math on Resurrection Sunday? Can I explain? What is a fractal as it relates to sin? A fractal is a reoccurring pattern, and it changes scale as it repeats. Watch. Sin is a repeating pattern that changes scale as it repeats. Sin is every self-destructive pattern in your life right now. And sin has one goal. It wants to destroy your future. Sin wants to destroy your hope. Sin wants to destroy your relationships. And it wants to destroy your soul. You have self-repeating patterns that are called fractals. They're self-repeating patterns. Isn't it so funny, we humans, we act as if God is the one to limit us. You ever heard somebody talk like this, a non-believer? I got to be free. I can't surrender to Jesus because then I'll have to give up all of my freedom. And I need to be free. I need to do what I want to do. I need to be creative. Folks, we're not even creative when we sin. We are so boring. Like, we just commit the same sin over and over and over again. Like, if you're going to be free to sin, shouldn't you pick a different sin every single day? But maybe there's a point when you stop picking sin and sin starts picking you. Maybe sin becomes the fractal that's self-repeating that you don't own but actually owns you. We're not even creative sinners. And that's the terrifying thing. It becomes a self-replicating pattern that you don't own. It owns you. And what's really tragic is that everyone else around us can see it. Why do you keep going back to such self-destructive patterns? Why do you do it? Why in the world are you going back to it over and over and over again? And you say it. You've, you've done it before. You've gone to an altar. You say, I'm never going to do that again. Then you do. I'm leaving that behind. Then you don't. I'm changing. Then you can't. And the people in your life keep asking why. Why do you keep going back and making this choice? And you don't know how to explain it. You just say it's no longer a choice. You lost the power to choose. It has now chosen you. And the sin has become a pattern that you can't break. It's a self-replicating pattern that increases in scale and it eats away at your soul. You know what's worse? Sometimes the fractals in our life are not even fractals we choose. When I say fractal, I'm saying sin. Like there's fractals passed on to you by someone before you. Like it was a pattern given to you by your dad or your grandpa. Or it was a generational curse given to you by your parents. And you didn't even choose it. It was just placed into your soul when you were young. You got uh, sexually abused at three years old. You had no choice to say no. And now it's the self-replicating pattern of pornography and lust and adultery. See, some of the fractals we don't even choose. It's like a blood disease passed down from Adam. We're born into fractals. Like you're just placed in your soul. Like you were young, you became a racist, you were hostile, you were unforgiven, you became bitter, you became cynical. It's been passed on to you. Some of you in this room, you're the sons of alcoholics and that fractal was passed on to you. Some of you in here, your brokenness didn't begin with you, it was passed on to you and yet you call that freedom. But you're a slave and you can't get free. Can I tell you that Jesus came to break the patterns of fractals? Jesus came to break the pattern of self-destructive, repeating behavior in our life. Regardless of the scale that we're on. Maybe it looks like this. Maybe it starts with offense for you. Maybe you got offended by somebody. Somebody harmed you. And once they harmed you, you began to hold on to that harm. And you chose not to forgive, so it became unforgiveness. And you allowed it to simmer so long that it became bitterness. And bitterness overtook your heart and began to simmer deep down inside. And then all of a sudden... uh, 
bitterness ate at your soul and became anger and you felt a desire to harm the person who harmed you. You thought it out. You had a plan. And the anger got so hard that anger became hatred for them and then your hatred became hostility and their hostility became violence and then your violence became murder and then murder wasn't enough, it became war and war became genocide. See, listen, look, look, church, we only call it the human problem when we see it at genocide, war and murder and violence level. But as it goes down the path or the scale, we disconnect ourselves from it because it gets smaller and smaller, it becomes us. And see, what we do in America is we claim that the problem is the ones that are high scale, but the reality is that the high scale are simply what we have allowed in our own soul. Can we step back this Easter and realize that the entire human dilemma across the globe is the fractal of the individual human soul replicated to grand scale? Hitler doesn't start off by genocide. He starts off with offense. And it's only when it gets to the top that we call it the human problem. But now, when it's us, it's not a problem. When us, it's just a fractal. With us, it's just a self-repeating pattern. Romans 6, verse 8 to 11. Look what the scripture says. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. I love this next part. Death has no longer mastery over him. Can somebody say hallelujah? He goes on in verse 10. He says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Craig, how do you do that? How do you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God? How does this take place in us? Listen to me, church. I remember when I first started grappling with this. There were two major transitions in my life. Two major transitions. The first one was about belief. Everybody say belief. At first, I'm a learned person. I'm a reader. I'm an analytical person. When I accepted Jesus, my biggest struggle up front was the belief. It was a true belief that God, it was a struggle for, God, for me to believe that God created us in his love, in his great image. He loved us enough to pursue us through the person of Jesus. Jesus lived his perfect, sinless life. He died a, debt, death, uh, a death on the cross that he, and to pay a debt he didn't owe so that, because I owed a debt that I could not pay. And on the third day, God rose him from the dead and he is seated in heavenly places. And can I just tell you, if you're here today, that's a fair and honest struggle of belief. If you're, if you're struggling, awesome. We're just glad you're here. But then what happened is once I believed, I realized I had a greater struggle still ahead. Because more difficult than believing for me was surrendering for me. And that didn't make sense to me. Can I be honest with you? I realized I could believe in Jesus without ever surrendering my life to him. I realize a lot of people attend church on Easter that believe in Jesus but have never surrendered. I realized that this transition, I... I thought it would be easy now. After all, God gave himself for me. He loved me enough to pursue me. He loved me enough to win my heart through his death and resurrection. So shouldn't it be easy to give my life to him? But it wasn't. I tell you, it wasn't. Surrender came hard. Why? Because I want to keep my life. I, I want to keep my sovereignty. I want to keep my decisions. I want to keep my freedom. And I could hear God shaking his head going, Craig, Really? Wow, you want to keep the life you have instead of receiving the life I have for you? Yes, Lord, if, if you want to frame it that way. Well, there's no other way to frame it. I was sinking like the Titanic. I was going down fast, and I still didn't want to leave the ship. 
And there's a lot of people here today that are like that. The ship is going down and you still don't want to get off. You don't want to surrender. It's going down. And here I was in this crisis of surrender. God must be so confused with us humans. <laughs> he must look at us, I mean, literally day by day and say, so your life is a wreck. Look inside you. Look, look. You're empty. You're broken. You're lonely. You're despair. You're full of pain. You're full of wounds. You want to keep that? You want that. You like that existence? And God says, you give me that, and I'll give you courage. You give me that, and I'll give you hope. You give me that, I'll give you healing. You give me that, I'll give you forgiveness. You give me that, I'll give you faith. You give me that, I'll give you love. You give me that, I'll give you faith. You give me that, I'll give you life. That's the offer on the table. Still, it wasn't easy. Because I learned, dead men are afraid of death. Dead men are afraid of death. They're afraid of surrender. So we go on in our passage, Romans 8, verse 10. Look what the scripture says. It's powerful. Verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you. By the way, that's the hope and solution for the human dilemma. Can I tell you the, the hope of humanity is that Christ is in you? That Christ comes to dwell in you. Listen, life doesn't come from God. Life comes in God. He doesn't give you life. He gives you himself, and in himself is life. The answer to the human problem globally is that Christ has to be in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the offer. God gives himself to you. And he says, though even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. I must not have said that right, because if you understood what that meant, you would not be containing yourself right now. So the reason you're so contained is because you don't understand, and I don't either. I read it all the time and don't get up and run. So let me say it again, because you obviously didn't get it either. Let's make that clear. What is he actually saying? Have you ever just had a hard day? Have you ever just been worn out? I mean, just worn out with life? You don't want to take another step? Everybody else's soul is thriving. Yours is anemic. And you're like, God, I'm anemic here. What's going on? Right? Have you ever just said, God, I just need some strength. God, I just need some faith. I just need some hope. Can you give me some caffeine here? All right. Preferably by IV. I, God, I need something, God. God, I don't have what it takes to do this life. Anybody ever been there? What he says is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now let's sit here for a moment. What scripture tells us is that all of our pain was placed on Jesus. All of our anger was placed on Jesus. All of our greed was placed on Jesus. All of our pornography was placed on Jesus. All of our alcoholism was placed on Jesus. All of our death was placed on Jesus. All of our bitterness was placed on Jesus. All of our wrath was placed on Jesus. All that was dark in the world that's ever been in the world and ever will be in the world was placed on Jesus. He carried the weight of death and hell, and yet it didn't have the power to hold him. It couldn't hold him down. And he says, now the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I don't know how much power you need, dwelling place. I don't know what kind of power you need, but I think that's enough. 
I don't know what self-repeating pattern you've had in your life since you were a kid and the enemy of your soul tells you it's always going to be there. You'll always be defined by it, but I don't know how much power you need to break it, but I think that's enough. I don't know how much power you need to get over a, a shameful past that the enemy keeps throwing in your face, but I'm here to tell you that I think that's enough. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He's not talking about the future. He says gives life to your mortal bodies. You know what that means? God sees me in my mortality. He sees me as a tomb, which is probably why he subjected himself to death and went in a tomb to prove to me that his expertise is raising the dead to life. It's probably why he shared in our tombness, our mortality, our Jesus did. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says very clearly, I've been crucified with Christ, refractal. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Come on, Casey. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I live. Listen to me. Look at me, church. What that means is that somehow, some way, get your mind around this. What must happen in the if I can say it this way, the metaphysical realm or the spiritual realm is that we have to get to a place where we must join Jesus in his burial, his death, so that we can join him in his resurrection. It's the pattern of our life. I remember I was new to the faith. I had taken a trip to Los Angeles Dream Center, and I was there doing ministry on um, what they call Skid Row, which is the place of... Uh, the greatest homelessness and homelessness issues in our nation. And I being young in the faith at that time, I, I never forget, there was a really high crime rate where we were at, and we were ministering in the middle of the night. I think we left at like 12 o'clock at night, ministered through the wee hours, and I somehow separated from the group while I was doing ministry, and there were people dealing drugs, and there was blood puddles on the ground, and prostitution everywhere. My heart was pounding. I never forget this as long as I live. I was standing on the edge of a street corner. I was terrified. And I remember looking up to God and I said, God, how am I supposed to do any kind of ministry when I'm terrified? How am I supposed to be a life giver when I'm scared myself? Oh, you're asking that question today about his calling on your life. How am I supposed to do that? I was new in the face of the believers in my church. They said, Craig, you need to memorize scriptures because when you need them, God will bring them to your mind. So I had memorized scriptures, Liz. I memorized this scripture. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That was a good one but it didn't come to my mind that night. I'd read scriptures like this and memorize them. Fear not, for I am the Lord your God. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged, for I am the Lord. That's a great scripture to memorize on the street corner of L.A., but it didn't come to my mind. I'd remember scriptures like this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That was a good scripture. I needed that right there. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the drug addicts on the street corner. That didn't come to my mind either looked up to heaven I said God you've got to speak to me I just finished reading a book by Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life where I had read Romans 666-11 where he does great exposition by the way in his book and I looked up to heaven and I said God I need you to speak to me and a scripture came to me I said Craig to live is Christ and to die is gain that wasn't too encouraging y'all that wasn't really helpful at all. I mean, I was looking for like an epic verse. You know what I'm saying? I'm scared out of my wits. And this conversation began to 
whoa, it began to well up in my soul as I began to argue with God. And I remember the Lord saying, Craig, in your lifetime, in the ministry I have for you, I want, you to, t- I want to take you to where only dead men can go. And so what you've got to do is you've got to put death behind you. And you've got to put life in front of you. And God says, I'm going to take you on a journey that's truly alive. And in that moment, I was there and I saw myself crucified with Jesus. I did. I'm as clear as day. As clear as I saw when Jesus died for me at salvation, I saw Jesus die as me on the crucifixion. And I was on that street corner and that little street corner became my coffin. It became my grave. It became my tomb. And what I've discovered is even though I came alive when I surrendered to Jesus, I have this terrible habit of calling back my dead self. Anybody else have that habit? I have this terrible habit of calling back my dead dead self to life. And I, this is why our culture is fascinated with um, walking dead and vampires because it's only simply a, a shadow of who we are. We are the walking dead. We consistently call back our dead to our present reality. And I, and I keep, I don't know about you, but I, I keep building coffins for myself. God asks me to do something. I get fear. I cower in fear and I bow down in coffins and then I somehow get my arms up and I put dirt over myself and I say, God, why did you do that to me? And God says, Craig, Why are you still acting like you're dead? I raised you to new life. That is a false memory of who you were. You are not dead anymore. You're alive. Anybody else have that problem? You keep burying yourself. You keep putting the dirt back over the tomb. Isaiah 25, 700 years before Jesus steps foot on the planet. The prophet makes a declaration. He will destroy death forever. Our Jesus destroyed death forever. And I don't know what you came in this room this morning with. Uh, You think God doesn't care about you? He will wipe away every tear from every face. Whatever you're dealing with, it matters to God. Whatever your heart is hurting with or your soul is damaged by, you matter and it matters to God. And listen, he says, he will take away the shame of his people from the earth. The Lord, not Isaiah, the Lord has spoken. I don't know how in the world we've gotten to a place in the Christian world where we use shame and guilt to manipulate people into spiritual authority when Jesus came to take shame away. Jesus came to take guilt away. Jesus came to set his people free. Jesus came to destroy death forever and to wipe away every tear from your face. This is the resurrection. This is Easter. You see the fractal? Death. New life. As we close, I want you to see the testimony of a couple in our church who've moved from death to life and are now being an agent to lead others from death to life. Watch this quick video. Okay, so um, growing up in Costa Rica, my parents were pastors and they actually got saved right after I was born. So all I've ever known was Christianity and um, that I should follow the Lord. And But growing up in high school and after that, I lived a life of legalism and I shouldn't do drugs. I 
shouldn't have premarital sex or alcohol, partying, all that. But I never knew what it meant to actually follow the Lord and surrender your life. Um, on, my, on my side of the story, it's more like my parents tried. They're great parents. just want to start by saying that. And it's, you know, they just raised me. And they were Catholic. And because that's in Guatemala, that's the main religion of, you know, that everybody follows because that's what's near your house. And they just took us Sundays and sat there and tried to make us listen. And, you know, once we moved to the United States, we started going to a church where it's just, it was a Christian church, a non-denomination church, but there was no, you know, there was nothing after Sunday. You know, just go Sunday, sit there like a zombie and, and just, you know, they were great people, but... I, want, I knew there was more than that. There was more than just, you know, going on Sundays and that's it. And at the time, I, I thought I got saved when I was 17 there. And, you know, but after that, I continued to doing drugs and to doing pornography and party and just doing kind of the free life, I guess, the crazy life. And until I met Adriana, you know, I met her at my job. I didn't really talked to her there, but we met at a party because I, I went there and she was at, it was her friend's party, so she was there. She was never a party person, so very thankful for that. She was a different, but um, after that, we got married. Fast forward to where we got married and we, we promised each other that we should find a, a new church because we started, we kept going to my parents' church and but we felt like something was missing from it, and and there was more to it, like I said before. And we promised that we, should, we were going to find a church to go to where we could get whatever that was missing, we can find it there. And we prayed about it when we rarely did pray, to, but we prayed about it. And one day at work, I was working at Evo's Honda, and King Smith was my coworker. He invited me to grow faces. I didn't know what it was or I wasn't really interested, but I did remind myself that we prayed about it. So I talked to Adriana about it when I got home and um, we said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And we ended up there and, you know, just we experienced what unconditional love was, I guess you can say, because there's people that don't even know me and they're welcoming you just, you know, with all kinds of love and smiles and just being nice to you for no reason, which I didn't understand because... I'm a full introvert at the time that I didn't care about nobody other than myself and my my stuff, you know. And I didn't like talking to people that I didn't know, so it was hard. It was hard and weird, but I was there for a reason, and I feel like God put me put us there for a reason. And yeah, that was one of the things that attracted me most to Donnie Place was they loved you without knowing you, and I mean, the people who greeted us, I remember was. Trent and Sophie, and they were just so, it was a warm place, and they just welcomed you with open arms, no matter who you were, and it was just a Thursday, it was just growth phases, so I was like, I'm so excited to find out what Sunday's like, and that Sunday, um, after growth phases, we recommended our lives to Christ, and we've never been the same after that. We started serving, I mean, we just... I felt we surrendered our lives to Christ because of doing plays. We we both got baptized in November 13, 2016. 
And I mean, from there on, the next year, the next summer coming up, we went on a mission trip to LA with Dwelling Place and our, you know, our very loved friends now that we consider family went with us at the time. We didn't really had to open up to them and, you know, we knew them, but we didn't, we still had kind of our boundaries up. But as we went to that mission trip on July in 2017, um, I asked God, before I left that. It wasn't just a trip where I could meet California or Los Angeles because that wasn't in my heart. I wanted him to reveal what his purpose for my life was. <laughs> and he did. And I remember I, <laughs> I asked the Lord before we went to show me what his love for unsaved people was. I mean, just the brokenness of people who don't know Christ, and he just showed me that. And, I mean, I just knew that that was it. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't go back to how I was living, how if I could go back to Georgia, I could not just encounter somebody who needed Christ, that I had to, I had to tell them, I had to let them know that there was hope and that Jesus loved them so much, and that LA trip, changed both of our lives complete, completely and we we haven't been the same since. We're definitely, we told ourselves that when we came back to Atlanta that we should do something about it and we should push towards it and as long as God continues to lead us and, and you know, in that area we should just be obedient to it and we got the opportunity to start a ministry in Ansley Park which is you know, it's just a little, it's a neighborhood where the majority is Hispanic people. And, you know, but I feel like that neighborhood is just really close to my heart. It's like a field, you know, where seeds can be sown. And the harvest, we might pick it up, we might not. That's up to God, not to us. And we can't wait to see what the future holds for it and what the future holds for Dwelling Place. We're just really excited to be part of it. We can't wait for what the future holds. You see the fractal? Amen. You don't need someone to fix the problems of your life. You need someone who can fix the problem of life in you. Life. And the good news is the fractal remains that he's still raising the dead today. <laughs> He's still taking people who are dead in sin and resurrecting them to new life. It's not only Easter, He is risen. It is that we are risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you keep looking for living things out of things in your past that always left you dead? Why do you keep looking for life among things that entombed you? you surrender all of your life to God, He'll give you all the life you could ever imagine. He'll transform you from the inside out. With every head bowed and every eye closed, you're here today and you know it's time. You struggled. You know it's now time for you to surrender. Maybe it's not just belief, maybe it's the surrender. For some of you, it's the belief. But with your heads bowed and every eye closed, you're here and you say, Craig, I'm ready to, to take the step from death to life. As you've been here today, the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and it finally makes sense to you. 
it makes sense to you that Jesus loves you, that he lived a sinless life, that he came and paid a debt on a cross. And on the third day after he was buried, he rose again. And today he invites you into life. He invites you to give your life to him that he might give his life to you. If that's you and you're here, and you say it finally makes sense, Pastor Craig, today I want to give my life to Jesus. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to pray one single statement. It is so simple. It's this, Jesus, I give you my life. And if you'll say that and mean it from the heart, Jesus will say, okay, I'll give you my life. You want the beautiful exchange? Say, God, I give you my life. All of my life. All of my past, all of my present, all of my future, I surrender to you. You're here. You say, Craig, I want to give my life to Jesus. Stop negotiating with God today. Stop. Stop. Stop getting in a battle back and forth on your terms. Your terms didn't work. You tried it your way and you failed. You've tried it your way and it's left you broken. You've tried it your way and you're left empty. Today, he says, come to me. As my little girl held up the sign, he waits for you to come. Backslider, you've known the Lord in your past, but you've strayed from the Lord and you're here this Resurrection Sunday. He waits for you. He waits for you with open arms. That's you in the room. I want you on the count of three. Just say, Craig, pray for me. I will not embarrass you, but he won't come where he's not invited. I want to lead you in a prayer. Simply from your heart that, Jesus, I give you my life. If that's you and you say, today is my day of surrender, Pastor Craig. Today is my day. Now, today is the day of reckoning. Today, salvation shall touch my life. Salvation is today. Today is the day of salvation. On the count of three, would you raise your hand? One, two, three. Is anyone in this room? God bless you. 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 You say, today is the day that I want to surrender. Anyone else? You say, today is my day. Those are streaming live. I don't know how you hopped on Facebook today, but if that's you right there in your bedroom, I want you just to say, Jesus, I give you my life. I surrender my life. If you just raise your hand, I want everybody to join with those hands and just raise and say, Jesus, I give you my life. Come on, just tell him, say, I surrender my life that I might receive yours. It makes sense to me, Lord, that you died a death on a criminal's cross. You stayed in the grave three days. But on the third day, you rose again. You conquered death, hell, and the grave. You're conquering sin in me. You're overwhelming sin in my life. And today, I begin a brand new future. Old things pass away. I become a new creation in you, Jesus. I confess you as Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, can we put our hands together and give God praise? Come on. Can I remind you of something, church? You don't have to be smart enough to argue about God to your coworkers. You don't have to be win or, or, or smart or wise or clever enough to win arguments with your coworkers. You don't have to be learned enough to have theological arguments. All you need to be is fully alive. The best argument in a world called America that is dead, that is walking zombies, is just be alive. Wake up every day fully alive. Wake up every day full of joy, full of hope, full of optimism, full of faith, full of His glory. And don't let anybody 
anybody steal it. Don't let anybody take it away from you. He paid too high a price for you and I to exist. He paid too high a price for you and I just to survive in our jobs till retirement. He paid a price for us to live. So let's live. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.